So Luke chapter 8, and we are doing 4 through 14. And when the great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what his parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we are so thankful again for this morning. We thank you for the snow. I love snow, Lord. I know that it's treacherous for a lot of people driving on it. It's icy. It can cause us to fall and hurt ourselves. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be safe as we walk, safe as we drive. But Lord, I thank you for what it, it, it shows and rep- represents, that our sins are as cleansed as white as snow. And because of the blood of Christ. And, Lord, we are here this morning because of Christ. We are here this morning because of Jesus' work on the cross and the Holy Spirit's work in our heart, Lord. And, Lord, as we teach and and read your word out loud, as we teach through your word, may you give us ears to hear. May you give us hearts to understand, Lord. May you give us uh, hearts to believe. Lord, some people in this room, Lord, we are of these different soils, Lord. Maybe they're here and their hearts are very hardened to the gospel and to God's word. Maybe for some, their, their hearts, Lord, they, they're excited about God, godly things. They're excited about Christian things. But yet when trials come, when hard times come, they quickly forget about you. Some of the people in this room, Lord, they, they, uh, you know, they like God. They love you. They love Christianity and the church. But really, they seek their own wealth and their own riches. And so they seek first their own kingdom, not your kingdom. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give people ears to hear and hearts to understand and to believe. May you give them hearts to repent and mourn of their sin. And may they put their faith and their trust in you for the forgiveness of their sin. Lord, we pray for Keck Avenue Baptist Church. Lord, we thank you for Marshall Locke. Lord, thank you for bringing him here to Evansville from South Carolina. We thank you that... You're using him to lead that church where we pray for their um, food drive ministry, through their, um, um, Lord, their, their food bank ministry, Lord, they have on Kentucky Avenue, Lord. We pray that you would give that, use that as a means, Lord, to bring people to know Christ. We pray for their other ministries, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give them uh, 
success, Lord. We pray that, Lord, that they would be a church, Lord, that is always proclaiming the gospel, Lord, that they would, you would give them a, a heart and a motivation, Lord, to proclaim the gospel in, the, in their neighborhoods around them. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities as a church to work with them and partner with them to see the gospel go to the nations. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray for this morning. We pray for those who weren't able to be here this morning because of the snow and the ice. Lord, we pray that you would give them, that you would bless them this morning, Lord. And after, as they're listening online, Lord, may they uh, feel a part of this morning's service. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right. So, um... There's a I'm a I'm not a huge I'm not a huge philo- I don't like read a ton of philosophy uh, I do like it a little bit I dab a little bit read a little bit of philosophy I do like Soren Kierkegaard he was a Danish philosopher and um, he uh, wrote a, an introduction or a forward to a book that I have and I was reading it this week and he talks about um, evangelism and how you know like in Luke when uh, Jesus calls the, the disciples to follow him and he says he'll make them fishers of men you may remember that 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 slogan a lot of ministries. Uh, use that slogan to title their certain ministries. Uh, and so he wrote this uh, a little short essay on fishers and men. And it was really interesting. It was quite, kind of humorous in a way because he really what Jesus is calling them out to, calling them to do is not really to be, fisher, but to be fishermen, but that the fish are literally going to eat them, right? I mean, like he calls these fishermen to go out to catch the fish but the, the, the fish represent the, the loss, right? And the loss, as we learn in church history, eats the fishermen. And it's really kind of humorous, but very true, is that Jesus is calling them to be fishermen who catch fish who are trying to eat them. And so really what he sends us out to do is to sacrifice our time, sacrifice our talent, money maybe, and and goals or dreams or whatever they are to catch fish, to, to be fishers of men or women. And so thinking about this, this was an introduction to a book called Dining with the Devil. And it was a book by Isaac Guinness, and he talks about kind of the megachurch movement and these kind of church growth movements that kind of started in like the early 1990s, maybe 1980s with Willow Creek and Saddleback and other really big thousand plus thousands upon thousand member churches. And he talks about this, these cathedrals of consumption is really what they are. They really are malls. They're Jesus malls. And you've got, you've got some that have food courts. You have some that have coffee shops. You have some that basically it provides all of the things that you would ever want and, and, and it provides it right there in the church itself. And these, the church is in a sense to grow to this ex, incredible number of, of people. You have to give people uh, things that they can consume. So people are looking for these things and they're looking for churches. They're looking for churches that are big, that have like professional music, that has, that has comforts that has coffee, and we have coffee, but has like other things where literally it's a coffee shop like Starbucks or other things that makes them, that it, 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 it kind of speaks to their needs or their, or their consumptions. This modern megachurch, and there's a particular person named Donald McGavin, and I was going to title the sermon this, but I thought it would be mean, but everyone hates Donald McGavin, like that's in the kind of like 
our kind of church world and the reform world, because it kind of it tells, it says, he kind of says in his books that to reach the masses, basically you have to reach one target group. So either you're gonna be the church that reaches all the middle American white suburban people, or you're gonna be the church that reaches all the black people, or you're gonna be the church that reaches all the Hispanic people. But basically you gotta find your demographic or target group of people, and you have to sell out to that target group of people. If you've read the Bible or you have any sense of like the God's church, especially in the beginning, that doesn't really make sense to what we see in Acts, right? It doesn't really make sense to what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 of Jews and Gentiles having to put down their differences and put down their hates and be united in Christ. But there's a sense, though, where that works, unfortunately. Really, if you want to grow a massive mega church, the best way to do it is to pick one group of people and do everything that caters to that group of people. The church growth movement kind of argued that churches need to be managed. It's about, you need to get in the managing world. You need to be a, a church that has a strong management structure. So you're kind of like, an, you're like a corporation or an institution that is managing all these resources and facilities and people. Think of marketing, and it became a prominent uh, uh, issue in evangelical churches in the 90s of how do you market your church so that people will come to it. So you're almost no different than a mall or a shop, a store or anything else that's marketing to the masses to come and spend their money and consume your products. So the churches. Uh, books like that Donald McGovern were writing and others were writing were saying, if you want to be a successful, growing church, then you have to do these things. You have to have a very sharp marketing plan and a very sharp management plan. And so even your communication has to be worked out and structured so much that people will come to your church. And so communication and marketing and management came to such prominent uh, points of emphasis in this church growth movement. This is, an art, this is a quote from C. Peter Wagner, who was at Fuller Seminary, where a lot of the church growth movement came out of. He says, to make more effective the propagation of the gospel and the multiplication of churches on new ground and seeing Americans evangelized in our generation. The question is, what is this new ground? What is he talking about? What new ground is he speaking of? What he's speaking of is what I just stated. There's a sense where you have to define what the market is and then reach the market. In today's world, we live in an experienced market. Uh, before, when in the 1800s, it was a raw-based market, right, where you're selling raw materials to your customers. And then the Industrial Revolution happened, so everything was an industrialization where you would make things in factories and then sell it to the people, right? Then you got to service-based industries where you're providing services. So it's not about selling raw material or, or industry. It's about service-based industry. Now we're in an experience-based industry. We want to give people experiences. That's why the uh, escape room has been such a, an, it's such a, a popular business. It's selling an experience, right? And so the churches are taking on this role as providing an experience to the consumer. So churches is not about coming and worshiping God. It's about presenting the consumer an experience. The better the experience, the more popular church. So based off that, what is the real definition of a church? What is the definition of a growing church? Well, first off, what's the definition of a church? Is a church the people of God? Or is a church 
basically a facility and programs of a one building or multiple buildings. Is that the definition of a church? What is the definition of growth? Is it quantitatively? If I say, is your church growing? You say, yes, our church is growing. We have 100 more people coming to service than we did last year. Therefore, our church is growing. Or is growth qualitatively saying, we may be growing a few in numbers, but really what we are is we're growing in our love of Christ. We're growing in our knowledge of God's word. We're growing in our dependence on God. We're sending out more money so that the gospel will go to the nations. But it doesn't mean our church is somehow five services and I mean, this, the parking lot is full. So what is the definition of church growth? See, we don't ever define the terms well, and we just assume what church growth is is that your church is just growing quantitatively. But the biggest emphasis should be what is a healthy church. And a healthy church doesn't mean it's necessarily growing quantitatively. It may be that it's hard in its growth, but yet it's faithful in its evangelism. So therefore, it is a healthy church. Presenting the gospel to believers? Or are we judged according to unbelievers' response to the gospel? Saying, that church isn't really healthy because the people that they show the gospel with never receives Christ. Therefore, they must not be a healthy church. Just because you're sharing the gospel faithfully and people aren't responding is not the fault of the church. So I present all that because really that is helpful in understanding what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the sower. First off, before we get into the sower, is there's a miss. There's a tendency to, people tend to misinterpret this passage. If you've ever gone to uh, and heard a sermon on the parable of the sower, you get multiple interpretations of this passage, unfortunately, even though Jesus gives you the interpretation, right? But yet, every time you go, sometimes you'll hear these pastors preach on this, and you're like, what is he talking about? Well, usually what they'll do is, is they'll, 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 they'll cast a sense that all the people in the story are Christians, right? And if you're a Christian then what, you're like a rocky soil. And all you need to do is stop and be steadfast in persecution. Or, or you, maybe your discipleship, you need to be in discipleship relationship. Or you need to be reading your Bible more. Or you need to be going to church more. So get, a, get out of the rocky soil or get out of the thorny soil and get into the good soil. That is not the interpretation of this passage. Really what it's talking about is it's giving this 30,000 foot view of Jesus' ministry. This big plan, this big idea of what Jesus' ministry is. We have one-fourth of the people in this story, or one-fourth of the characters in this story, are lost. This is not speaking to Christians to work harder and be good soil. The Spirit of God prepares the soil to hear the word, not your own self-improvements. So this is not a self-improvement sermon. This is not a moralistic interpretation or application of this. Just be good soil. Just be good soil. That's not the way Jesus was teaching this passage. Beware if you recognize yourself as one of the three soils. The, the, the soil, the, 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 um, the one that is the, the road, the one that is the rocky soil, and the one that is the thorny soil. Beware if you recognize yourself as one of these three soils. Hear, understand, and respond to the truth of the gospel. If you're one of those three, you're not a Christian. Let me say that right on the bat. You're not a believer in Christ if you're a part of the, the road or the rocky soil or the thorny soil. 
Let me present a little more context. Luke chapter 8. Remember when we preached last week, Jesus' disciples and some of these women that were following him, he brings with him, preparing uh, the future of the, of the ministry of Christ when he ascends into heaven. Like I said before, Jesus is kind of giving us a 30,000-foot view of his ministry, the ministry that they will continue once Christ ascends into heaven, the same ministry the church, like Redeemer, will continue. Isn't it awesome to think, though, like when Jesus is like preparing the disciples and the women and, and, and preparing the early church, that we are connected to that same ministry? Isn't that cool? Like, that's far better than Amazon or Apple, right? I mean, they're going to die. Those companies will eventually go away. You realize that? The, the evolution of corporations and businesses, they will eventually go away. But the church will always be in business. Because our ministry is connected to Jesus. Thousands of years in the past, the early church, which then continued Jesus' ministry through the Holy Spirit, we then continue to the Holy Spirit. It's really cool. Our ministry kicks back to Jesus and his company of followers. So point number one is that Jesus taught in a parable. So we see that in, in chapter 8, verse 4, that a great crowd of people were gathering around him. This is a common way that Luke introduces his stories, right? He says a great crowd follows Jesus, or a great crowd has come out to see Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a pretty popular figure for most of his ministry, right? He was healing people. He was speaking with authority, I mean, for a lot of them, he was feeding them so they would come out to listen to him talk. And so he starts to teach them. He says, uh, he starts to teach them in a parable. This is the first time in the book of Luke we see the term parable being used. So what's the change? Why is he now teaching in a parable? He even says later on here in verse, verse 9, he says, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. Seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So he's teaching them in parables so that they wouldn't understand. He chose to speak in a way that some would not understand. That doesn't make any sense. Why would a communicator or a teacher teach in a way so that people wouldn't actually understand? It's like speaking in a foreign language, even though you know English, just so that people who know English wouldn't be able to understand it. It makes little sense why he would do this. In Matthew 13, 34, it says that Jesus chose only to speak in parables. So after a certain point of his ministry, he's like, I'm only going to teach in parables. I'm not going to teach like the Sermon on the Mount anymore. I'm only going to teach in parables. And if you read the rest of the, the gospel, when Jesus is teaching, he teaches in parables. Even when he gets to Jerusalem, before his crucifixion, he's teaching in parables. So he stayed true to that, that, that statement. He is, chose to only speak in parables. He says in verse 8 of this passage, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying that if you want to understand this, if you want to know the truth of who I am and the ministry of me and my Father, you must have ears to hear so you can understand, so you can listen. Proverbs 1.22 says, Fools hate knowledge. Some hate the truth. So some of them hated Jesus. Some of them hated his words. Some of them hated his teaching. The Pharisees, and especially the scribes and the religious leaders, they hated the truth of Christ. And so therefore they're fools for not loving knowledge. 
Some only wanted a sign. Some only just wanted Jesus to give them food. Some of them just wanted Jesus to heal them of their diseases or the diseases of their family members. They did not want to know about God's kingdom or Christ's kingdom. So fools hate knowledge. And so because Jesus recognizes because he's God, but also by the reaction of his ministry, some just truly did not want to follow him or worship him or know him. So he started to teach them in parables. So the teaching in parables is a judgment on those who hate the truth. I mean, that's crazy to think that Jesus would teach in a way because they just didn't want to know. They didn't care what he taught. A, teaching, a parable was a teaching device that taught theological truth in a familiar setting. You put one thing aside, another for comparison. However, one must have the ears to hear to understand. They must desire to know the truth and believe in it. Therefore, for those who hate knowledge and wisdom, the parables are a judgment. They're a judgment. There's a, um, basically Jesus is speaking in riddles. And there's a riddle that uh, my, my father, I told this to some of y'all, my father told me, we're in the car on the way to Oklahoma, we had a long trip, and I was driving for most of the, the first three-fourths of the drive, and he was like, hey, there was, I was listening to um, Caleb, and they presented like this, this trivia question, which ended up being actually a riddle, and it says, if he was here today, he would be 38. That's what the riddle was. That's basically what Jesus was speaking. He was like, if I was here today, he would be 38. And you're like, what does that mean? You don't know what that means. For many of the people listening to Jesus, they were like, that's a riddle. It doesn't make any sense. So the disciples asked him what this parable meant. They wanted to know. We don't see anyone else from that crowd going up to Jesus and saying, hey, what did the parable mean? Only the disciples. Only the disciples and the people that followed Jesus cared to know what the parable meant. They desired to know more about what Jesus was teaching. The others was like, I don't understand it, so I'm just going to go on. He's teaching in riddles. I don't care, to, care, I don't care to, to follow him or know him or learn from him anymore. The disciples asked. They desired to know. And the, when we think about the Bible, for some, for some of you and for many others, they go to church, they hear the Bible preached and taught, and they go, I don't understand a word that was said. But the problem is, is that they, don't, they stop there. They never email the pastor. They never set up a meeting. They never read the passage and come up with their own questions. They don't desire to know. And so they leave it there, and they go every week hearing preaching and teaching and going, I don't understand what they're saying. I don't care. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll go every week. And it's like, why don't you ask? Why don't you show the desire to know? Point number two is the word of God spread widely. So he teaches in parables, and this is the parable that he taught. He taught about the parable of the sower. He said a sower, a sower, not the sower, but a sower, went out to sow his seed. So we have an agricultural um, uh, parable. This is the story we get that obviously Jesus is speaking in Galilee, and this is an agricultural region of Palestine. And so a lot of these people would recognize this agricultural reference. So Jesus is primarily speaking to common people, the Pharisees who aren't farmers, who are, who are, who are experts of the law, would not recognize some of the statements and the, the, the phrasing and the imagery being presented here. So it's so fascinating that Jesus teaches in parables, but he also uses common people language, a judgment on the Pharisees. He doesn't speak in these high religious terminology, he speaks in language that the common people would know. 
And he, and he says the sower will spread the seed. This was a, 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 a technique called uh, broadcasting. So you would walk down the plowed fields and you would spread the seed. You would scatter the seed by hand. And you would spread them liberally. You're not, you're not going, well, I know that's the good soil, so I'll put the seed there. Or I know that's the good soil, so I'll put the seed there. He's scattering them quite liberally. He's just scattering seeds into the plowed field. Not knowing what's actually in the soil. I mean, he knows there's good soil, but he knows it'll probably be soil with rocks, and he knows it'll be soil that has certain things that you don't want in the soil. So he scatters the seeds, his leaves would fall on different types of soil. And he's, again, he's not expecting every drop or every placement of a seed. He's spreading the seed. Did you notice the sower is not identified? However, his actions are. The seed is the word of God. Jesus tells us this in his explanation in verse 10. That the, that, I'm sorry, in verse 11, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The word of God is the seed, and, and so the sower is spreading and scattering the word of God. Not ignorant of where it goes and what soil it lands on. So what is the word of God? It's the revealed will of God. It's what we see in God's word. It's here in the Bible. The means of salvation, God's word, shows us who we are, who he is, and the means to be reconciled to him, to have peace with him. It shows us the condition of our souls before a holy God. It shows us the path to understanding and to wisdom and to peace. It shows us the riches that are in God, right? So in a sense of the seed or the word of God is wealth, not materialistically, but it's wealth because knowing God is the, the best thing you could possibly possess. I love Psalms 119. It's the longest chapter of the Bible, but it's probably one of the better, one of the greatest chapters of the Bible because David is telling you how great the word of God is. He says that it's a lamp to my feet. So in a dark, dark place, when you can see nothing, the word of God is a lamp unto your feet. It's a light unto your path. Psalms 119, 127. It's finer than the finest gold, David says. David, who had all the riches of the world, says that the word of God is the wealthiest and the richest thing a man could possess. That's the seed that's being scattered. This is not some pathetic seed, some artificial seed, right? It's not as Paul says in Galatians 1, 9, 8, 9, which is the false gospel. This is not the seed that's being spread. This, uh, this, this, this gospel or this truth that produces false conversions, this moral therapeutic deism, this moralism, this do-goodism, that's not the seed being spread, it's not Christian, Christian subculture. That's not what's being spread. It's not love Chick-fil-A and listen to music that, that you, that's, that's flowy and moralistic. It's not wearing Jesus t-shirts. It's not going to, to summer camp. That's not the seed that's being spread. The seed that's being spread is the word of God. It's the revealed word of God. It's not behavioralism. It's not characterism. It's not what some churches do with children's ministry and say, hey, just be like David and have courage. That's not the seed that's being spread. The seed that's being spread is the revealed word of God. It's the Bible itself. And anything that's scattered that's not the word of God is not helpful to any of, any of the soils of the hearts being represented here. Anyone who proclaims the gospel is a sower. Jesus Christ was a sower. The disciples were a sower. The early church were, were sowers. The church today, you, if you're a follower of Christ, are a sower. 
Matthew 28, 19 through 20, says to go to all the nations with the gospel. We're called to cast seeds to every nation of the world, the unreached especially. You know there's 3.15 billion people that are unreached? Like there's a, there are many people who do not have any access to the gospel, no access to the Bible. I'm not talking about your friend that lives in your dorm room who doesn't know Jesus. He's reached. He has you, right? I mean, there's the reach. He can go buy a Bible quite easily. Those who are unreached are those who have no access to the gospel. Do you know that 10% of missionary work goes to them? Do you know that over, over 50% of money given to missions goes to support ministries that are for reached people, not unreached people? We're called to share the gospel. We're called to spread the gospel across the nations. If there's a few opportunities coming up soon. Um, if you're a college student, we're going to Charlotte on March the 1st or the 5th. We're going to help, start, help a church plant that's planting a church amongst Nepali communities. Some of those people may go back to Nepal and share the gospel with those who are unreached. Uh, the, we're going to Nepal this summer in June. Those are opportunities to go spread the gospel to unreached places. And we're called to do that. The question is, how are you sowing the seed of God's word? How are you in your sowing? Are you sharing the gospel with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? There's a great book called The Art of Neighboring, and it presents this, this um, kind of this um, uh, tic-tac board. And what you are, you're in the middle of the tic-tac board, and who are the people that are surrounding you by your house, who works around you, who goes to class around you, in your dorms, who lives around you? Those are the people you should be interacting with and sowing the gospel to. The third point is the heart that blooms, the heart that blooms. So a sower seeds his seeds, he sows his seeds, and those seeds fall on four different soils, four different places. Number one is the path. They, those who have heard God's word but have rejected it. They, they heard it, but they did not understand it and believe it. And it says that the, the bird or the devil comes and takes away the word. The, the devil here is like the false teachers, it's pride, it's doubts, it's the love of sin. Therefore, when you hear the word of God, when you hear the means of your salvation, you reject it because you love your sin, or you are too prideful, or someone doesn't actually, it deceives you, and, and you believe in the, in the false gospel. A great example of people who are like this path are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are ones who have heard the Bible and heard God's word repeatedly, yet reject it repeatedly. Their hearts are hardened to the truth. Um, they, are, they hear the word, but yet it causes them to get angry. It literally causes them to be offended when Jesus teaches. The Bible upsets them. It outrages them. You may know people like this. You may be one of these people. When the Bible is taught or you hear the Bible, then you're outraged. Right? You know these, some of these people, maybe on Facebook or on some type of chat room where they hear the Bible, or they hear a Bible verse, and they are angry, right? They are insulted, or they are outraged by it. They're outraged by you, or they're outraged by the church. Those are people that the Bible, the Word of God has been spread to or cast to, and they are hardened to it. So they reject it. It's, it, it's, my aunt and uncle that live in D.C. are very much like this. Every time me or my mom or my dad say anything about the Bible, they get angry. They get, ups they get uncomfortable and upset. And it's because their hearts are hard, man. It's unpenetrable. Like, the Bible comes into their world, and they reject it immediately. 
Their pride prevents it, prevents them from hearing and understanding. And what are we supposed to do with people like that? What, what, is the, what, are, what are we supposed to do? We pray that God would soften their heart to hear and understand and believe. That they would no longer love their sin, no longer be full of pride, no longer be embarrassed about being a Christian. For many, that, the reason why it doesn't, it doesn't impenetrate in their hearts is because they're embarrassed about being a Christian. They see, of all, oh, if I'm a Christian, that means I'll have these friends will go away, or this relationship will go away, or this will go away, or that will go away. We should pray that God would soften their heart. The second soil that the seed falls on is the rocky soil. And this is soil that is shallow, and so the roots aren't able to, to grow and be mature. They receive the word with joy, but they have no roots, and after a while they fall away. They have a superficial faith, is what they have. They're pressured by parents and friends to walk down the aisle. They're pressured by friends and family to get baptized. They're pressured by their friends at summer camp, at Bible camp, to go forward even though they really don't believe it because they want to fit in. It's a superficial faith. Some may actually pursue it and be full of joy, and you can see it, but yet... Shortly afterwards, I mean, years afterwards, they fall away, consumed by some struggle or some trial that prevents them from seeking and, and being steadfast in Christ. There are people that are consumed by emotion at a conference. Like, it happens all the time at Passion, right? If you go to Passion Conference or any of these conferences, these people get, get talked into going. They're full of emotion. They're full of passion, but they really don't believe in Christ. They lack perseverance. They don't continue in the faith. The Bible is always telling us this. It doesn't say, hey, believe. It doesn't say this one-time thing, hey, believe, have faith. It says continue to have faith. It says continue to believe. This continual, steadfast action is what is being called for here. And these, the seed that falls in this soil does not have that steadfast nature. I have a friend in, um, that I went to high school with, and he actually... Um, was my friend in youth group. Like when I first joined this church, he came over to my house and invited me to come to church with him. And I was already a Christian, but I was new to the Memphis area. And so he invited me to church and we became friends throughout high school. And actually he came to UT and we were friends at UT and he fell away from Christ. Like he rejected Christ. You know why? Because of someone he looked up to, they fell into sin. And because of their falling into sin, he said, all Christians are full of crap. And so he walked away from faith. A trial... A, an event that happened that caused him to be upset caused him to fall away. He didn't have perseverance. He, he, the, the, he heard the soil. He heard the gospel. He had joy at one time, but then he fell away. There's an overemphasis of joy, I think, in the Christian church. Joy over lamenting. Like, you hear worship songs. It just needs to be full of joy. It needs to be full of happiness. But the problem with joy is sometimes we overemphasize joy at the risk of lamenting and mourning our sin. If you don't have lament and mourn of sin, you do not have faithful Christianity. We are called to be repentant and to have faith in the light of suffering. Suffering, as, as the church grows in its persecution, as we're more persecuted for our faith, you will notice that Christianity in America is a far smaller group of people than you probably, you probably already thought. That we truly are the minority of people who believe in the gospel and are faithful to the gospel, regardless of what happens in our life. 
Just to kind of present who these people are in in the story of the gospel, they're the people that Jesus fed in John chapter 6 for the 5,000, and then by verse 66, they withdrew from Christ. They were full of joy when Jesus gave them food, but when Jesus said, eat of my body and drink of my blood, they go, I'm done. I'm done with this. Warning to you to hear and believe and persevere. Press on to the end. Press on to the prize. Stop looking back. Look to Christ. The last, the, the third soil is the thorny soil. And it fell among the thorns. They hear the gospel, but then it choked the fruit of the pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. It appears good on the outside, but there's impurities in the soil. Which made me think of, like, I remember when we moved to the east side, and if you buy a house on the east side, like near the University of Evansville, they'll tell you, like, you know, like, there could be lead paint in the soil, or there could be lead paint in, like, the flower bed. So if you do, like, a garden, you usually do a raised bed because you're afraid that there's lead paint or other materials in the soil that's not good for producing tomatoes and other vegetables. And so this is kind of what we have here. There's impurities in the soil, and you won't see it until things start to grow. Uh, and so there's impurities in the soil, and as it grows, as the fruit tree grows with the fruit, thorns start to grow. Is that this particular heart is rooted, he has, he has this root system and things that are not good, things that are the pleasures of the world, riches and wealth and glory and power and other things that cause people to fall. That kills the fruit of righteousness. You think of the, young, the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 25, right? Who wanted to follow Christ. But then when Christ said, sell all that you had and follow me, he walked away sadly because he didn't want to get rid of his riches. His riches were far more important to him than seeking Christ's kingdom. And so a follower of Christ, not only do they hear and understand the word, they also are ones that persevere. They're also ones that seek Christ's kingdom above others. They purge the things in their hearts that are not of God. They purge them, and Christ remains. We, the, the one who is, who is, whose heart is like the thor, thorny soul is one who is distracted by the things of the world and not focused solely on Christ Jesus alone. The, the application of this is seeking first his kingdom, Christ's kingdom, above all other Kingdoms, your own kingdom, the kingdom of the world, your own riches, your own wealth, your own power, your own significance. Those things are not things that produce fruits of righteousness. They produce thorns, and they will choke the fruits of righteousness. If you know someone who is, who is priority in life is wealth, but they are also like, like they, they go to church, they may do Christian things, there will come a point in time that if they do not purge that desire, if they don't purge that love, then they will fall away. What is your priority in life? Is it to get rich, to be praised? Understanding the true value of the gospel will honestly put you in a perspective that the wealth of the world really is not worth comparing to the glories of Christ. So my desire for you is to think and invest in his kingdom above all. Don't invest in the kingdom of the world. Don't try to to invest all your time and all your talent and all your money and all your energy into the things that this world produces because it is thorns that will choke fruits of righteousness. Invest in the kingdom of God. Giving more to missions, giving giving more of your time, giving more of your talents, purging the things that choke out the gospel. The last soil is the good soil. 
The good soil hears the word, holds it fast, and bears fruit. You don't know who the good soil is. If you look at the Bible, and you did like an external observation, you would never say Rahab had a good, was a part of the good soil, right? She was a prostitute in Jericho. And, but then when we think of Jesus' uh, uh, genealogy, Rahab is mentioned in his genealogy. She was faithful to God. She repented of her sins. She followed Israel and followed God. Think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. In the outside, was she a good soil? Could you have ever gone, well, there's your good soil right there. There's no way you would have made that guess or that prediction. The man on the cross, right? The robber who died with Christ on the cross. Could we ever say, well, he was the good soil? He was, though, right? He repented of his sins and trusted in Christ right there on the cross. We're ignorant of the good soul. We have no idea who they are, what hearts they have. We, all that we know is that the Holy Spirit is preparing their hearts, and as we cast the gospel, the gospel takes root. They hear, they believe, they understand, they persevere. They seek his kingdom first. Only God knows. Only the Holy Spirit's work prepares the good soil. The only thing that we know is that we're supposed to spread the seed. How are they to believe unless they hear? Romans chapter 10. How are, they, how are they to hear unless we preach? How are we to preach unless we are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to the people? We don't know who the, good, we don't know who the people are. We don't know who the good soil is. We're just called to cast the seed. Revelation 7.9 says that there will be, uh, John is seeing all these multitude of people from every nation, tongue, and people, meaning that the Holy Spirit prepares its good soil. The gospel will go to them, and they will believe in the gospel. They will stay, be steadfast, and they will persevere, and they will seek his kingdom above all others. We know that that will happen. We don't know who they are. We don't know their identity. All that we're called to do is preach the gospel. All that we're called in this passage is to spread the good news, to spread the word of God. We are sent to the nations. The church is ignorant of whom the gospel will be believed by. We don't know who, we don't have a profile of all the people that in Evansville that when we preach the gospel to them, they will believe. We do not know any of that. All that we know is the Holy Spirit is preparing the hearts of, the, of those who will receive it and will believe them. So we have to spread the whole seed, the full message of the gospel, which brings the gift of eternal life and the Holy Spirit. John Owen said that those who have their souls justified by grace must have their sins judged by the law. We have to preach sin. We have to preach good news. Any gospel that is, is, is absent of any of those two things is not the gospel. It's not the word of God. So what is our role? This is the last thing. What is our role as the church? To spread the seed, to spread God's word, to cast a wide spread, not to think, oh, well, who are those people that look like us and talk like us and act like us? Because those are the people we want in our church. So let's go cast the gospel to them alone. No, cast a wide spread. The technique is not the emphasis. You don't see in this passage Paul, David, Paul, Jesus saying, and by the way, when you are sowing, make sure you put your arm in a particular angle and make sure you cast it in a particular angle. There is no technique. We emphasize technique and evangelism far too much. If you believe in it and you know it, you should be able to talk about it. Maybe the problem is, is the reason why we don't talk about it, the reason why we don't know what to say is because we don't actually believe it. We don't read the Bible enough to know it. 
If you sit in church every Sunday and go to Bible study every week, you should know enough about the gospel to be able to teach it. You do not need a class to teach you how to share the gospel. You don't need a class to teach you how to, to, to tell you that the Pacers won this week or the Colts won this week. You don't need a technique or a training to tell people about some news. So let's not overemphasize technique or training. Devotion to the task is the emphasis here. Pray that hearts will be softened to hear. Pray that hearts will be steadfast in trials. Pray that hearts will seek his kingdom first. And pray that hearts will produce abundant fruits of righteousness. That's all that we can do. That's all that we can do is pray and talk. Pray and talk. Pray and talk. All the other waste of time, techniques and training and books read and emphasis goes out the window. And most ha- what happens most of the time is we're just afraid to teach and to talk and to spread the gospel. Knowing that we don't know who's going to believe. One-fourth of the people that will je- uh, three-fourths of the people will reject the gospel. Only one of the soils accepts and believes. So therefore, most of the people that will hear it when we speak it will reject it. But that doesn't mean we aren't called to cast it, to cast a widespread, and to pray that God would soften hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I-